This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We're broadcasting out of Pistown, Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. This is the show we do exclusively for you, our subscribers. Today marks the 10-year anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and it's the subject of our Chip Chat conversation. That's coming up in just a few minutes. Also, the garbage can at the end of the show. We've got a haiku to read. All that coming up. But first, Sam, remember back in May when the Biden administration surprised us all by saying it would support a COVID vaccine patent waiver pending before the World Trade Organization? I do remember. Yes, yes. I'm sure some cynics at the time, including myself, said that this was Biden just trying to cover his own ass, avoid criticism, and that the U.S. actually had no intention of supporting it. It turns out the cynics were right. Again, this week during a World Trade Organization session, the U.S. came out opposed to the waiver. That waiver was submitted by India and South Africa, has the support of over 100 countries. According to the summary of the meeting obtained by Sarah Lazar over at In These Times, the U.S. urged other nations to, quote, think outside the box or think of a way that we can share vaccines around the world that doesn't include stripping capitalists of their property rights. Of course, the answer is you can't. There's no other way uh, to do this. Um, these vaccine manufacturers do not have the capabilities on their own to produce 12 billion vaccines to vaccinate the world. Um, so really the only way to get vaccines quickly to poorer nations is to allow them to produce the vaccines themselves by sharing the intellectual property behind them. The U.S. now, uh, I should say, remaining an obstacle along with the European Union and other Western nations uh, in opposing this waiver before the World Trade Organization. And uh, in, in this case, I mean, property is uh, bad in all cases, but in this case, it's uh, particularly absurd because these are vaccines that were developed with a large chunk of public money. So yeah. uh, this isn't a, even a matter of, of pretending it's about research and development. I mean, obviously, the drug companies are doing that. They're pretending um that their 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 Randian brain children will be uh, stillborn if they if they aren't allowed to retain the, this intellectual property rights over something that again they didn't develop uh, with their own capital. It was public money. Public yeah, always... pu public public citizen came out with a report last month uh, explaining that the Moderna vaccine was produced with huge amounts of public money, uh, and as part of the agreement. Uh, uh, BARDA, which is a agency within the National Institutes of Health that supplied the hundreds of millions of dollars to Moderna to help develop the vaccine. As part of the agreement, BARDA owns the recipe for the vaccine and the data that came along with uh, production of the vaccine. So we don't even have to wait on the World Trade Organization. The U.S. wouldn't have to wait. They could just send uh, the Moderna recipe to the World Health Organization or whatever country they wanted to. In related news, the Biden administration announced this morning that it's donating hundreds of millions of Pfizer vaccines to countries around the world. Curiously timed, coming the day after news broke 
but the administration is still voting to prevent countries around the world from making their own vaccines. Yeah, the uh, the key part there is that they're donating vaccines that they already purchased from Pfizer. <laughs> so ensuring that we're still keeping market forces uh, uh, intact here. Also this week, a new conspiracy theory dropped when Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Take a listen to this exchange. Blinken was questioned by top Republican on the committee, Jim Risch of Idaho, about President Biden's mute button. Look, we've all seen this. We saw it as, as recently as yesterday. Somebody in the White House has authority to press the button and stop the president, cut off the president's uh, uh, speaking ability and sound. Who is that person? I think anyone who knows the president, uh, including members of this uh, committee, knows that uh, he speaks very clearly and very uh, deliberately uh, for himself. Uh, no one else does. Well, are you, are you saying that there is no one in the White House that can cut him off? Because yesterday that happened, and it's happened a number of times before that. It's been widely reported that somebody has the ability to push the button and, and cut off his sound and stop him from speaking. Who is that person? There is... There is no such person. Again, uh, the president uh, speaks for himself, uh, makes all of the strategic decisions, uh, informed by the best advice that he can get from the, uh, the people around him. So are you unaware that this is actually happening? Because it happened yesterday at the uh, interagency fire center. Uh, it was widely reported. The media's reported on it. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened several times. Are you telling this, are you telling this committee that this does not happen, that there's no one in the White House who pushes the button and, and cuts him off in mid-sentence? That's correct. So this didn't happen yesterday, nor on the other occasions where the media showed the American people that his sentence was cut off in mid-sentence. Yeah. Are you saying that didn't happen? Senator, I'm, I really don't know what you're, uh, what you're referring to. All I can tell you is, uh, having uh, worked with the president uh, for now uh, 20 years, both here uh, on this committee uh, and uh, in, uh, over the last nine months at the White House, the president very much speaks for himself. Well, let's take a different attack. He does speak for himself, but what happens when somebody doesn't want him speaking? You're, you're telling us you don't know anything about this, that, they, that somebody cuts him off in mid-sentence. Is that what you're trying to tell this committee? Because everybody here has seen it. What Rish was referring to, a White House video feed of a roundtable discussion on wildfires, which faded out as Biden started talking. Presidential events often feature press access at the start, and then the media is ushered out of the room as the discussion starts. But the Republican National Committee seized on the moment and tried to make hay of it, tweeting out the video. The implication is that Biden is so senile, there is a guy at the White House who can cut him off. Unfortunately for Rish, he does not exactly come off as a senility expert after that exchange. But such is what passes for discourse before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You know the situation is dire when it's Rand Paul making the half-decent points. The Kentucky Republican pressed the Secretary of State on the recent drone strike in Kabul. The Pentagon said it targeted an ISIS militant en route to Kabul airport to carry out an attack. 
And it turns out the U.S. military killed an aid worker and nine members of his family, including seven children. Here's Paul questioning Blinken on the attack. The guy the Biden administration droned, was he an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, the administration is, of course, reviewing that, uh, that strike. Uh, and I'm sure that a you know full assessment will be will be forthcoming. So you don't know if it was an aid worker or an ISIS K operative. Uh, I can't speak to that, and I can't speak to that in this setting in any event. So you don't know or won't tell us. Uh, I don't. I don't know because we're, we're reviewing it. Well, see, you'd think you'd kind of know before you off somebody with a Predator drone whether he's an aid worker or he's an ISIS case. Paul finished off that point by meandering to lament how Biden didn't call in airstrikes to destroy all the U.S. military equipment that the Taliban now controls. Truly a beautiful brain. Speaking of the U.S. military, the Air Force announced a $6.6 billion contract with Lockheed Martin to supply replacement parts and maintenance for the F-35 for the next few years. It's a major boost to the defense contractor who saw a lot of potential contracts go up in smoke with the fall of Kabul earlier this month. It's always business for war profiteers in the U.S. The F-35 makes up 25% of Lockheed's annual revenue. Uh plane doesn't work so well, as we've reported for years uh, on this program, but we're going to keep throwing money at it because it's basically a welfare program for defense contractors at this point. Lockheed Martin uh, just needs to come up with a uh, a jet, a, 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 a top speed jet that just acts as an umbrella so it can fly <laughs> over the Lockheed, the, the F-35 uh, when it's raining mm. so it can still work in the rain. We should put you uh, in touch with their engineering team over at Lockheed for the uh, jet umbrella. All right, let's chip chat. It's time for chip chat with journalist Chip Gibbons, the policy director over at Defending Rights and Dissent. He speaks on his own behalf when appearing on this program. Welcome back, Chip. Thank you for having me back. It's uh, good to be here. Yep. Uh, so let's see. We... Uh, Last time we had you on, we were discussing the... 20 years of 9-11. 20 years of 9-11, right. And we've got another anniversary to talk about this week, 10 years since the start of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And uh, Chip, I'm reading... 10 years today. 10 years today, right? That was the September 17th, 2011. 10 years ago today, I I was on Metro North or driving to Poughkeepsie going down to uh new york was i was above new york then as opposed to below it now um and head into a bowling green statute which my iphone could not find and kept giving me directions from grand central station to bowling green kentucky site of the infamous (laughs) bowling green massacre uh it is it is a miracle i ever found my way anywhere so uh, nine years ago, you wrote a piece for Counterpunch, looking back on Occupy one The lesser year. anniversary, the lesser anniversary, yes. Right, right. And um, I'm just going to quote a piece that, far from being just another protest, Occupy Wall Street is unquestionably among the most important social movements of the past decade. Occupy has captured the public imagination like no other protest since the 1960s. Um, you know, we've now... Nine years removed from that. Uh, figured it'd be a good time just to kind of discuss our thoughts on Occupy. Chip, why don't you go ahead and start, you know, 
and we can see how well your piece aged in, in terms of what you think of the movement now, 10 years later. Yeah. So one of the things that I observed in, in my piece 10 years ago was how when I first uh, went to Occupy on the very first day of it, uh, literally 10 years ago, today of recording this, uh, I went with some people from my college, one of which had been involved in labor organizing. I'd also been involved in, in, in the student labor dialogue with him, which was a very interesting group in that it involved both uh, students and campus workers sort of organizing together and a probably more interesting story than day one of Occupy, but um, I will skip it, as well as some environmental activists, as well as myself, who had been, you know, largely a background in anti-war activism and very heavily involved in Palestine solidarity activism at the time. So I think that's sort of indicative of sort of the eclectic nature of it. And when we got there, I mean, it was extremely unimpressive on that day. I was reading the Financial Times this morning and they described it as 40 participants um, and I think that's probably right, maybe a bit generous. And they were like doing yoga and we walked away because we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we were unimpressed by our yoga. And when we came back, there were more people and we, but still not that many. And we were supposed to go to this one park, but we had announced we were going there. So the NYPD had shut it down and then we were all going to go to Zuccotti Park, but no one had ever heard of Zuccotti Park, right? We were all just like you know, in the crowd be like, where the fuck is Zuccotti Park? And like, be like, I've been in New York for 70 years and I've never heard of a Zuccotti Park before. Um, and then we went to Zuccotti Park and there was these two Ron Paulers who took over the open mic. Oh, and, were, yes. and they were explaining how silver, not gold, silver should be our, our currency. Uh and the reason I, for I don't want to get too sidetracked, but so they they weren't even bimetallists. Can I explain to you why? Silver? I'm going to explain to you why. I'm going to explain to you why because silver is the world's greatest conductor of electricity. Okay. But all of our silver reserves had been melted down to make the missiles and the Predator drones. Okay. Uh, so we had no money. Um, <laughs> and and it was like. It was not a good scene. We all just laughed like, "What?" And the, we, we, oh, and the big thing about the first day of Occupy that completely gets written out of the history. So, Adbusters magazine puts out this call for Occup to Occupy Wall Street, and part of the call is that after we descend upon Occupy Wall Street, we were going to vote on our demands. Like it was not an intentionally quote unquote demandless movement. However, whenever somebody tells me Occupy Wall Street had no demands and that was its problem, I politely asked them to name the demands of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, uh, particularly quizzing them on what type of a suit did the marchers want the attorney general to be empowered to bring. Um, and they can't name it. Uh, right. But we all know what, what the march was about in the same way we know what, what Occupy was about. So um, we break out into these groups where we're supposed to come back to the main group of demands and vote on them. And I was very insistent our demands should be like single payer health care, pulling out of Iraq and Afghanistan. I also got the microphone and, and took the time, and I believe there's a video of this somewhere in the world, to explain to the assembled people how the Spanish Socialist Party were not real socialists. Would I do that at 31 as opposed to 21? No, no, I would not. 
Um, and then we all just went home. I'm like, this is this is this is just uh, this was just a bad waste of a day. Um, I mean, you weren't wrong though about the Spanish socialists. To be fair, I mean, in the sense did the that, pe- that the, the, did the people of Occupy, all forty of them, <laughs> need to hear for me, twenty one year old liberal arts student, that the Spanish socialists were the fake socialists. Um, you know, I. You, might not be surprised and I was a Trotskyist at the time. Um and then anyways We need we need that 21 year old chip on Twitter ASAP. <laughs> anyways. Anyway, Twitter just I, I think I need to know a little more about the context to know whether or not you should or should not have done that. But I think we're getting a little too We're getting yes here. I and anyway so the point is in the piece the thing I say in less words is that Never in my life was I so happy to be wrong because my impressions of Occupy Wall Street on the first day and of pretty much everyone I know who participated in it was like, wow, what a, you know, anticlimactic thing. And then some days later, and I was surprised there was even any occupiers left. Like I, I, this was like possibly the least impressive protest I'd ever attended in my life. Uh, I attended some pretty unimpressive protest. Uh, and also some very impressive ones. And, like the, the remaining occupiers get kettled by like Officer Baloney and and like pepper sprayed in the face. Remember that? Or Mason Joey in Bologna. the face. Jody Bolo- Tony Baloney. Tony, Tony Baloney. Joey Baloney was in Philly as a Philly cop, I think. That's right. There have been two uh major police brutality incidences involving protesters involving a member of the Baloney family. Yeah, Joe and Tone, Tony. <laughs> no baloney uh, here. No so baloney. I, 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 then what? Obviously, I don't mean to jump ahead, but that's fine. Yes, I, I'm I gonna tell con- the whole ten year story one day at a time, Sam, and we're gonna end on today. <laughs> I I was completely blown away. I remember at the time, um, you know, not expecting much. I I obviously wasn't at the first one. Uh, the first day of protest in New York. I didn't even, I, I only, uh, I wasn't as involved in the DC uh, encampment as I would have liked to have been. I had actually just started a new job at the time. And, um, Oh, you were in DC and not Montreal. No, I, I left Montreal in 2008, but, um, I was just I was kind of blown away when it spread from Occupy Wall Street to there being encampments all over the country. I did not really expect that. And um, as you sort of note in your piece, I think it really reflects an urgency at the time where, uh, you know, the the financial crisis had just happened in 2008. Um, There was no real street level response to that. I mean, there were, you know, I don't want to say no protest happened, but it was obviously very... um, small and scattered um it's interesting because about a year before this there was the um the bloomberg camps right in new york city protesters put up like hoovervilles and called them Mm. bloombergvilles and there were some protests on 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 wall street uh but they got no media coverage whatsoever even though some of them were more sizable than the first, they all were more sizable than the first day of Occupy Wall Street. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, Karl Marx tells us that we make history, but not to our own liking. 
uh, for whatever reason, it was the Occupy Wall Street moment that captured that zeitgeist of, of dissatisfaction. And it very much was a protest about economic inequality, very much about corporate dominance, and very much about sort of our diminishing uh, democratic viability of our system. But, you know, there was also so much other anger there as well. You know, one of the big first uh, Occupy Wall Street protests where there's, a, where there's a confrontation with the NYPD is in protest of the execution of Troy Davis, right? You know, and there's a really good In These Times article uh, called The Execution That Birthed a Movement by uh, Kayana, I'm going to butcher her Kianga name. Yamada. Yeah, and Jen Marlowe, a, a piece co-authored by them in 2016. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Yes, Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Jen Marlowe, which uh, makes arguments I made in a critical race theory seminar paper three years before, but it's fine. They can, they can have them. They can have them. <laughs> uh, about sort of this relationship between Occupy and Black Lives Matter, very much focusing on the Troy Davis execution. I mean, that was... I mean, the occupiers joined the Troy Davis protests and got the shit kicked out of them by the NYPD. Um, and I, 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 and you know, there was a lot of anger and opposition about the wars and the killings. You know, we're spending all these monies on wars. There's, there's yeah. no one who supports them. I mean, when people say that occupy, as you noted before, that occupy was like too vague, had no like real demands, whatever people were just camping in part in parks. I think that really um, reflects the amount of um, desperation and need for, as you noted in your piece, more radical politics, yes. more um, attacking capitalism at its root yeah, rather me... than just sort of nibbling around the edges. And um yeah, you know, I, I I just think it really spoke to a lack of systemic critique at the time, and really, I, or at least forceful systemic critique. Obviously, people were, you know, had been protesting various things um, in the years leading up to Occupy, but it, yeah, I mean, just the totality of it all. And and there were organized left groups that were on sort of the fringes, like the then International Socialist organization which i never was a member of but was a fellow traveler of there was the workers world party and the party for socialism and liberation uh in new york the plp which i was shocked to discover still existed showed up a lot um and then these other sort of even even more bizarre groups like the internationalist or the sparts or the um DSA had a presence Bob, too. No? DSA had a presence too. Yes, I mean DSA was significantly weaker. I mean, it was technically in terms of the organized left, the largest group with with five thousand members. Uh, the ISO being the largest revolutionary socialist group with one to two thousand members. Um, you know, these are the types of numbers where we're we're dealing with. I mean, DSA caucuses in twenty twenty one are than you know whole left groups were in 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 2011 um and, and, and just in as way, organized and disciplined 
I mean, I don't think you can really talk about the growth of DSA and the Bernie Sanders movement as well without the history um, of Occupy in there. Yes, and it's almost yes. like a progression. Um, you can see the left sort of mature in real time in the U.S. in, in, in the last decade going from Occupy um you know, to, to, to various other movements and organizations, to the Bernie Sanders campaign, to He's really coming to occupy the computer. Oh, uh, the kitties in the the kitties in the frame. Now. Yeah, but but no, I, I I think I think it's a really important point to make, and one that I frequently say in good faith to people, um, and no one wants to wants to hear. I mean, when Bernie Sanders ran for president and. 2016 if he got double digits like at the beginning if he had gotten 10 percent, that would have been considered like a miracle okay like like everyone involved in that there's all these people now who are like we're socialists but we only run to win we only run to win we're not gonna and then they write off all these sorts of things because they you know in their crystal ball declare they're not gonna win the way Bernie won, but you know, no one expected Bernie to get 10% in the primary. Uh, and he ended up being an extremely viable candidate. No one expected Corbyn, you know, to win the labor leadership, uh, you know, race. I think if he got 10%, that also would have would have been a, a victory. So, you know, sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time, not for spontaneity. I mean, things take organization, they take structure. And I do think one of the negative takeaways from Occupy is that the left needs more structure, needs more discipline, needs more democratic movements. Because, um, you know, consensus and weird anarchist stuff isn't actually democratic, in spite of what they say about it. Uh, but, um, but, but, you know, why is it that Sanders is able to go not just to 10%, but to taking on as a viable candidate one of the most powerful people within the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton, when, you know, Dennis Kucinich or Al Sharpton or whomever, you know, just just got in that two to three percent range. And people will always say, well, it's Bernie was a good candidate and Dennis Kucinich was weird. He had elfin ears, you know, and he was too short. He saw UFOs. And it's like, come on. I mean, that's character assassination that his opponents did. Sanders, you know, also had a lot of character assassination uh, thrown at him. One interesting thing that I had not thought about until last night was there was a lot of really bad faith pseudo-identitarian attacks on Occupy Wall Street, right? These were absolutely a real thing and they were extremely frustrating. And those really do pre-configure the attacks on Bernie bros, right? Oh, with that I mean, Occupy was a bunch of white dudes, like white people and economics don't deal with the real issue. And I've ah. read all these, you know, critical theorists in my Foucault seminar. And let me tell you how by talking about wages, you are reproducing race. You know, you, you know, you, you've met these people. And they used yeah. to be a lot more hegemonic and now they've well, been sort of relished to the dustbin of history, to borrow not, a Leon Trotsky quote. And not not to get even more sidetracked, but they do remind me of how like 
you know, liberals in the build up to the Iraq war would say, oh, you're against the Iraq war because you are a racist to think that Iraqis can't handle freedom or something. But John McCain did that one. That was a John McCain one. I don't even think that was the liberal. That was just, you know, John McCain was like, oh, they had a million person march. Well, what the people in Iraq have to say about it? And then, you know, the people in Iraq had a very clear thing to say, which is don't drop bombs on us because we were bombing them once every three days and Saddam was actually strengthening his position, not uh, losing hold on power because, you know, even people who didn't like Saddam, and I don't think there's anything likable about Saddam Hussein, I'm going to be very blunt about that one, were like, well, the Americans are bombing us every three days, I guess, I guess Saddam it is, you know, um, but but no, yeah, and and I do think that, you know, we're, I'm harping on a lot of the, the, the negatives, which is unfortunate because the piece that we're discussing is just all positive. Um, and I, I, I do, I do want to talk about the positives. I do think it reset the conversation in this country about economics, about class, about those things that the socialist left used to care about, and then sort of the postmodernist, identitarian, whatever you want to call it, left sort of, uh, took hold of these sorts of like academic and cultural institutions and just completely destroyed. And this brought back, this brought back class-based politics. I remember these extreme Trotskyists and extreme Marxists would come in and say, you're not talking about class, it's bourgeoisie versus proletariat, not 99% versus 1%. And it's like, no, People who are talking about the 99% versus the 1%, whether or not they are using the correct words bourgeoisie and proletariat, uh, are absolutely articulating a theory of class-based politics in which there is economic exploitation in this country and there is an irreconcilable conflict between the exploiter and the exploited. And if they're not doing that in your 19th century Marxist language, I'm so sorry. And I spoke frequently in 19th century Marxist language during this time in my life, hence why I was lecturing people on the failures of the Spanish Socialist Party. Uh, but like, but like, even I was like, what the fuck are you doing? We're finally talking about class conflict. We're finally talking about class. This is really great. And I do think the movement sort of also gave inspiration to other movements. I think when you see the first um, Million Hoodies March, in Times Square, which was a, a protest around Trayvon Martin because he was wearing a hoodie when he was murdered by a, a, a vigilante. Uh, you know, you go back and read sort of the uh, contemporary commentary on it. There's this one part of commentary that was very much like, oh my God, there's Occupy people at the Trayvon Martin event. I don't know what an Occupy person is. We have to purge them. They're not welcome here blah, 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 blah. And other people who are like, hey, this, this Trayvon Martin protest, it's, it's a new kind of protest. They're using Occupy-like tactics, right? And I think that uh, in the piece I was ever seeing before about Troy Davis, they argue that sort of the Troy Davis execution helped to birth the Black Lives Matter movement. And they also talk about how it sort of gave the Occupy movement, you know, the Occupy movement was engaged in these protests for for Troy Davis at the very end, very end, like like you know, not not until not until that one day, 
Uh, and I also think that Occupy really, really, really gave a lot of life to discussions about police brutality, right? Because the NYPD was so heavy-handed in, uh, in, you know, beating up these protesters, evicting them from their parts, you know, young people, like 19-year-olds, you know, that I, I knew, I was, I was in college at the time, so it was normal for me to know 19-year-olds, um, right, who I, like, I, I knew, right? Like, Age you know, gap. Yes, 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 you know, we had both, you know, seniors and, and fresh, well, not, we didn't have freshmen at Bard, it was first years. Yes, I did just acknowledge I went to Bard, I am a stereotype. Um, you know, we had first years and sophomores and juniors and, and, and seniors in the Bard Occupy Wall Street group. I'm, I'm sure someone on Tumblr is horrified that people of two years age difference and same mental capacity are, uh, you know, in the same in the same cafeteria together. What will Th think what about the it? power differential, though? I know. I know. I should have done that. Uh, and 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 like who went and in this 19 year you know, like, I guess, 29 now, probably, but like who got really into stop and frisk. Right. Mm. And he was he was from Arizona. He was up at Bard. Uh, but in his experiences with Occupy Wall Street, he got really into this one wing of it that was very much against the NYPD. And instead of just being like, hey, we're white people who got our park evicted, like they joined up with longtime people of color led organizing and really had a revitalized movement against stop and frisk. Um, and I think that sort of Occupy providing some foot soldiers and some renewed, uh, renewed, re renewed interest in in that movement really helped to uh, revitalize and and expand it beyond where it was. And I, I don't want to say like, oh, these occupiers came in and, and saved these, you know black mothers who had been trying to organize around stop and frisk for you know decades like this, that's not what happened but like they joined forces and joining forces together the movement was even stronger and there wouldn't have been a stop and frisk movement without that work that had already been done but i i, I do really think uh some of the first annual stop and frisk uh protests like after occupy had a huge influx of of people and I, I do think in a number of ways, this sets the stage for other protest movements, including, you know, Black Lives Matter. And all of this is dialectical, right? It's not that if there was no people in Zuccotti Park, there would have been no Black Lives Matter. That's a ridiculous claim to make. Or if there was no, you know, Occupy, there would have been no Bernie Sanders. But like, why was Bernie Sanders able to do so well when like Dennis Kucinich and Al Sharpton were not able to do so well. And I don't, I don't think it's because he was a significantly better candidate per se. I think it's because the zeitgeist had changed and there were people who were really behind this. Um, I hate and the zeitgeist even... partially not to interrupt you, the zeitgeist partially changed, of course, because the 2008 financial crisis and the underlying well, material well, conditions. I mean, yes. It, it is a pretty clear. It's, it came a few years after that in which there was a failure to address that stuff. And yes. Obama had embraced austerity 
Republicans had recaptured uh, Congress in the midterms. And it was clear that whatever promises Obama had made uh, weren't going to happen. And we went from, I know Chip's smiling because he knew it and didn't vote for Obama at the time. As he, he didn't like, make any promises. Constantly. He didn't make any promises. Oh uh, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, he talked about he talked about you know rolling back the tides of climate change and all this other stuff. Did you but read the, he also promised to send more troops to Afghanistan. He promised to bail sure. out the banks. He promised to kill Pakistanis right. with drones. Right, like. All of this like broken promise Obama narrative. It's like I, I'm I, sorry you never I, looked at the campaign issues on I get his it, website. Chip. We get it. You were smarter than everybody else. At the I time, wasn't Chip, smarter but... than anyone else. I'm dumber than most people. You know, like I don't. I just we, we don't need to relitigate the 2008. Yes, we don't. Primary. I'm just saying <laughs> we that. Like we do. We need I'm... to stop relitigating the 2016 primary and start relitigating <laughs> the 2008 primary. This is a hill I will die on. I'm just saying there's a very bright line that Occupy marks from with this kind of with austere, yes, yeah, yes. but this kind of age of austerity that we need to be cutting back public services, we need to be doing all this stuff to, you know, Democrats and you know, progressives being like, actually, we don't need to play defensive anymore. We can kind of like try and build more public services and you... And, and and from there you get you know the debate over healthcare in 2009 Obamacare where you didn't have like single payer even on the table even under consideration to Dennis you know, was seven, fighting for it yeah but to seven years Dennis. later to seven years later having like Medicare for all an extremely popular position that is a central debate within the Democratic par- primary can I say two things. Can I say two things? No, we'll let you say one. And we'll, no, I'm we'll, going we'll to think s- about saying the second one. Uh, I'm going to say two things. I would actually like to point out that during the healthcare debate, there were a number of grassroots protests, very interesting ones for a single payer system. I believe DSA took part in them. And I also know that on at least one episode of CNN, they showed pro-ACA protesters. And I was looking at their signs and they're all single payer now. So like the street action, the street action in 2009 was for single payer. Okay. And that was a movement. <laughs> well, and Amy Goodman- it had zero a- influence at the time on the debate in Washington, unfortunately. I mean, I was I was I was working on the Hill at the time during the ACA and single payer was a a complete non-starter, never discussed at all on Capitol Hill. So to to the point now, and I mean, the argument is that now, seven years later, you've got like a Medicare for all bill that has co-sponsor that has, you know, you had the Conyers bill then too. It had a large number of co-sponsors as well. I I, I would love to see uh, a chart of of the Conyers now. So Jayapal, whose bill is it now? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to have this argument with you today, but I, I, I I'm I not sure what there's... the argument here is. <laughs> that, I'm just simply saying that support for single payer health care grew considerably since 2009 and ended up uh, capturing the attention of lawmakers that it didn't have, you know, seven years earlier. I don't think that's a very debatable topic, but I'm, if, if you if you if you would like to. I will debate this another day. And then the other thing I want to point out is that, you, you know, you have Occupy, but you have in the run up to that, you have the Wisconsin uprising. Right. Yeah. The same way that I think Occupy sets the stage for Bernie. I think the Wisconsin uprising absolutely 
absolutely sets the stage for Occupy and the Wisconsin uprising has been completely, completely written out of history. Uh, there also was the Republic window and doors uh, factory occupation. You're talking about the, the resistance to Scott Walker's anti-union legislation. Yes. Yeah, in, two, in 2011, which also yeah. was in. They occupied by- the Capitol. Yeah. Which, yes. And that was influenced by the occupation of Tahrir Square in Cairo by, I mean, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But, no, no, no. And a lot of people sort of wanted to sort of say Occupy was influenced by the Arab Spring and it was heavily, but it was also very heavily influenced by the Ignato movements in Spain. I think the comparison to the Ignato movements in Spain is far better than the Arab Spring. And, and, and the Wisconsin uprising, and the Wisconsin uprising was an incredible moment of hope and uh, the same way Occupy was. And, you know, you, you have a lot of things going on. Um, you know, had there been no Occupy Wall Street declared by ad busters, you know, would there have been something else with the same sort of purpose? I, I, I suspect so. But, you know, Occupy really reset our political discourse. It, it made it possible for Sanders to, to not just get 2%, not just have 10% as the high bar, but to, to pose a credible threat to Hillary Clinton, um, pose a credible threat to, to Joseph Biden in, in 2020. And I think, I think, you know, and there's a lot that happens, you know, in between Occupy and, um, and uh, Sanders, you see the proliferation of these Jacobin reading groups across the country. I used to run the DC Jacobin reading group and we would have between 30 to 70 people every month. And I went to one f- of those meetings. And a third of them would never have been there before. And a lot of those people would never come back, right? But you had this I constant- I never came back. You never came back. That's fair. That's fair. You know, but you had this constant cycling of people through sort of an esoteric reading group. And there's a lot of reasons that one might not want to come back. Um, so, so uh, especially uh, depending on but, but my point being is there is this sort of broad reawakening of the left. You know, some people are like, there was no left before Bernie Sanders and he rebirthed everything. And like, you know, you go back and you look what people are writing. In 2014, the left is stronger than it's ever been before. It's undergoing a reawakening. You look at 2011, the left is stronger before it's, it's being reawakened. Look at the Republican windows and doors, right? Like that is a consistent thing. The left is consistently growing and getting stronger. What counted as a major exponential leap forward in like 20, no, 2009 looks stupid in 2021, but there is a process that creates of a growing socialist left focused on sort of, you know, economic inequality, racial oppression in the form of police violence and dissatisfaction with the forever war that eventually gives Sanders this bump forward. And then Sanders is able to grow this movement exponentially, not like right, not him personally, but his campaign and creates this 
absolutely exponential gap. And it's very dialectical, right? Because you couldn't have had without these earlier advances, Sanders to do what he did, and you could not have the current exponential growth of the left without Sanders doing what he did. It's not a no Sanders story, but it's not an all Sanders story. Yeah, and uh, it's continued now post Sanders. We saw similar, you know, Occupy tactics during the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising against the cops last summer. Um, and it's hard to call it Occupy tactics because, like, occupying something has just been like a basic tactic to spark revolutionary change if you don't have like an armed militia group behind you. Um, yes. That's basically going to be the way to uh, enact change. And people are like, well, these are just cosplayers. And it's like, no, they're out there getting their heads bashed in by cops and actually trying to like make something happen. Uh, we've got just a minute left, Chip. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would like to to look at sort of one of the paragraphs I, I wrote in my piece. I said, you know, I, I talked about some tangible victories, including against youth prisons Occupy had. And I said, you know, just as important as these victories had been a shift in dialogue uh, for decades, the spectrum of acceptable discourse had been rapidly closing blah, 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 beginning of the 20th century. There's socialist, anarchist, syndicalist, something about John Dewey. Uh, true democracy meant not just popular participation at the ballot box, but in the workplace as well. In short, capitalism and democracy are not one and the same, but are instead deeply antithetical to each other. Yet only 80 years later, Margaret Thatcher, one of the architects of the current neoliberal economic order, would chastise the people that their, the current neoliberal economic order, there was no alternative. Thank you, Chip who we tried to warn was going over time. We didn't give him the old long cane yank that you used to see in the Bugs Bunny cartoons. Unfortunately, uh, Zoom caps meetings at 40 minutes if you don't pay for the premium Zoom, uh, which, of course, we do not. Yeah, Chip's going to accuse us, though, of cutting his mic, yanking him off the air, of censoring him. But... The audience can hear. I told Chip he has one minute left, so he decided it was a great idea to read a two-minute passage from his article. Anyway, if you want to read his piece on the one-year anniversary of Occupy, it's at counterpunch.org, titled Occupy One Year. Uh, unfortunate that Chip got cut off when he did, or rather didn't choose to read uh, the later excerpt, uh, because he was just about to make a good point in his piece about how the conventional wisdom used to be that it's not just capitalism that's beyond reproach, it's neoliberal capitalism uh, that's beyond reproach, but that started to change after Occupy. Also, we didn't get to get into the full scope of how Occupy was targeted by law enforcement. Feds were involved too, of course. The FBI and DHS coordinated with local police departments around the country to spy on Occupy organizers and to help with the crackdown on encampments that were carried out, of course, by local police. A lot of this was exposed in late 2012 when the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund obtained FBI records through FOIA, but it was obvious at the time that Occupy was going on that there was some sort of threat federal coordination, though, encampments across the country. A lot of them were evicted by police around the same time in October 2011. And in a radio interview with the BBC, then Oakland Mayor Jean Kwan talked about how before the crackdown of Occupy Oakland, she was, quote, on a conference call with 18 cities across the country 
who had the same situation. You might also recall how in April 2012, the FBI entrapped members of Occupy Cleveland in a bomb plot spearheaded by a paid informant for the Bureau. Reading from Arun Gupta's piece in The Guardian about the stitch-up, informant Shaquille Azir, quote, led the brainstorming of targets, showed them bridges to case out, pushed them to buy C-4 military-grade explosives, provided the contract for weapons, gave the money for the explosives, and demanded they develop a plan. At one point, Azir burst out in frustration at their ineptitude. Quote, every time we meet, we leave saying we're doing some research and then get back together and go back to square one. One woman who attended Occupy Cleveland protests said that of the five who were, who were arrested, all but one of them were destitute. Quote, they are angry, some have mental illness, and there is alcoholism and abuse in their families, uh, and the FBI ruined their lives. Three of them were sentenced to prison terms between eight and 11 and a half years. Also of note, the FBI records obtained by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund showed that the FBI was aware of an alleged plot to assassinate Occupy Houston leaders and just decided to keep that information to itself. The assailant's plan was, quote, to gather intelligence against the leaders of the protest groups and obtain photographs, then kill the leadership via suppressed sniper rifles. The identity of the alleged assailant was redacted. The redactions were challenged in court by Ryan Shapiro, but a judge, Ryan Shapiro, of course, being the FOIA guru who has been on certain iterations of this program in the past, um, but a judge ruled in the FBI's favor, saying the Bureau lawfully invoked FOIA exemptions when it kept the information secret to protect law enforcement proceedings and privacy. That's right, law enforcement privacy. And also when it invoked sources and methods exemptions, including carve-outs to protect confidential informants. Anyway, I did not file a FOIA this week. Uh, so this counts for FOIA Friday. Not, I'm not taking credit for that, of course. This was all the hard work of the uh, Partnership for Civil Justice Fund uh, to obtain these records when they did in 2012. Uh, so kudos to them for their efforts there. Yep, kudos to them. Do you hear that music? That means it's time to read some poetry for our new subscribers on Patreon. This one goes out to Rick. Babe, please believe me. My balls look like that because I took the vaccine. Thank you, Rick. Yes, thank you, Rick. Thanks to all our subscribers over at patreon.com slash district sentinel. Couldn't do any of this without you. Time for the main event. Interns, bring out the garbage can. Oof. Oh, wow. I don't know if each week we accurately convey to the audience, Sam, just how bad the garbage can smells. Like, I don't know how we can do that. Like, we don't have smell radio yet. We don't even have smell vision yet. I thought we'd have smelly TVs by now where people would be able to smell whatever they're watching. You know, that's stuff that I remember you'd see, like, in cartoons and sci-fi in the 90s and stuff. Don't have that. Don't have smell podcasts either. So you're just going to have to take our word for it that this garbage can is smells bad. 
maybe we uh, can come up with a premium tier Patreon subscriber um, that gets a scratch and sniff uh, mm. <laughs> garbage can. Mm. Yeah, I'd be interested in that. Although I, I, I how do, I how do you scratch people... and sniff? How do those? How do those work? That's a technology I don't understand. People will be lining up to buy that. <laughs> Smelly scratch and sniff <laughs> stickers. If someone knows how to make scratch and sniff stickers, let us know, please. That would be pretty funny, though, if there were bad smelling scratch and sniff scratch and sniff stickers, and you could just like scratch them and like shove them in someone's face <laughs> as like a prank. <laughs> they would be huge in elementary and middle school. <laughs> All right, that's good, interns. Thank you. Garbage candidates number one: Congressman Peters, Schrader, and Congresswoman Rice. This is the trio of Democrats that killed a proposal in committee this week that would have lowered drug prices. This is a popular proposal that allows Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate for lower drug prices. It's popular because people would like lower drug prices, but uh, naturally, Big Pharma hates the policy. So uh, in addition to a seven-figure ad buy trying to kill it, they also greased the palms of Democrats to kill it. Peters, the biggest recipient of pharma cash this election cycle, he, Schrader, and Rice have collectively taken about $1.8 million, and it paid off. They uh, they ended up sinking this bill uh, in committee. Interesting, all three of them supported a prior iteration of this legislation during the previous Congress. They all voted for it, and when... Peters was asked why he was opposing it this time around. He said it was because this time the bill actually has a chance of passing. Last time, Republicans controlled the Senate, and he only voted for it to start a conversation about lowering drug prices. Uh, This time, when he could actually lower drug prices, he chose to oppose the legislation. What a guy. (laughs) What a guy, indeed. All right. Garbage candidate number two. Gun. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Some people are going to be upset with our next two garbage candidates, but I don't care. Uh, Pramila Jayapal, head of the Progressive Caucus, a new report uh, in BuzzFeed this week, suggests that she treats her employees like shit. Interviewed 14 former staffers who described a uh, chaotic work environment in which Jayapal publicly uh, yelled at workers, forced them into... Uh, long hours, constantly uh, changed requirements for workers. Um, It led to people uh, just not wanting to work on the Hill anymore, seeking therapy, who previously worked in her office. Jayapal has one of the highest staff turnover rates in the House. Um, I'm reading from the article, due in large part, former employees said, to the unrealistic standards uh, she has set. Um. I mean, I worked on the Hill. Uh, I didn't, you know, particularly enjoy my time on the Hill because I didn't really respect uh, the guy I worked for. But I was never really screamed at uh, in the office. Um, this is not a normal part of working on the Hill. Every office is different because every office has a different boss, uh, the congressperson, and it depends on their personality. And it sounds like Jayapal has a pretty shitty one. Yeah, I think the damning uh the damning 
tidbit from that article other than, you know, uh, I mean, the anecdotes are uh, uh, damning, obviously, but the turnover data, I mean, like, comparing uh, her, her staff turnover to her colleagues, like, if you're just going to say that every office on the Hill is like that, then why do some have worse turnover rates than others? Yeah. Yeah. And this... This has been a rumor for a while among people on the Hill that her office is a pretty rough place to work. And to be clear, we're not canceling Pramila Jayapal here. Uh, we're sharing uh, an article about how she treats her staff in hopes that maybe she herself will read that article and decide to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding of the workers she employs. Garbage candidate number three, another progressive Democrat, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she's nominated because she went to the Met Gala on Monday. Shitty event where in the midst of a uh, pandemic that's killing 2,000 people a day, uh, didn't see many people wearing masks at the gala. There's an eviction crisis, and yet she's partying at one of the most indulgent affairs in New York City. Um, also, there were protests outside the Met Gala. People were protesting uh, the mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, de Blasio for his funding of New York police officers. Um, instead of joining the protesters, uh, AOC was inside hobnobbing with de Blasio. Now, I guess a lot of people are uh, saying that this is all fine because she decided to wear a dress that said tax the rich <laughs> while she was doing this. Um, she told reporters that she wore the dress to start a conversation, uh, between the classes, a dialogue, uh, among classes here. Uh, nobody wants that shit though. We're not looking to dialogue with capitalists in the, uh, ruling class. We're looking to take their fucking wealth. We're looking to outlaw billionaires. Um, tax the rich is a fairly sanitized message while correct. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think there were many people inside the Met Gala who were offended by that message. I think that when she says she was trying to start a conversation, this conversation has been happening. Uh, and if she wanted to start a conversation in a much bolder way, her dress could have said uh, land redistribution or like nationalize Amazon or something. I think maybe then she could have pulled the discourse card, but tax the rich, you know, Adam Johnson was harping on this on Twitter. It's it's not exactly, you know, it's not the most bold thing to say. No. Eat I the mean, rich, most maybe. of the people probably at the Met Gala support that. It, like the question is, well, how much are you going to tax us? But I think... Uh, yeah, I think that like they would pay lip service to uh to to increasing their own taxes. Um I don't know. the whole the whole discourse was um Yeah, honestly the 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 discourse should be nominated more than AOC at this point cuz it was fucking <laughs> awful. Um people are like, "Oh, she's doing mass politics." She's like, "Get the fuck out of here." Uh she wanted to go to a fancy party and uh she decided she had to wear that dress to be able to do it. She even admitted she knew she was going to get criticism for it and she went anyways. Uh she probably has spared herself from the garbage can cuz she did introduce 
legislation to extend unemployment benefits. But there too, I'm being a little bit cynical. And in the timing of this, uh, she's introducing this legislation 10 days after those benefits expired, when we knew for a month that they were going to expire. But she waited until now to introduce the legislation one day after she stepped in some shit going to the Met Gala. Garbage candidate number four, Los Angeles Dodgers security. Shout out to our listener, Hoel, for bringing this to our attention because I'm usually asleep by the time the Dodgers games come on TV. Protesters took to the field to raise awareness about all the communities that were bulldozed and lost uh, when they built Dodger Stadium, something that's never been reconciled with. And these protesters were absolutely manhandled by Dodger security. At one point, you could see a guard applying a chokehold to one of the peaceful protesters. Just a a fucked up sight all around. So LA Dodgers are nominated. Garbage candidate number five, a guy named Connor Sen. He's an investment firm founder, and he wrote an op-ed in Bloomberg calling for the return of company towns, this time run by Amazon. It's titled, Amazon's New Factory Towns Will Lift the Working Class. Sen imagines uh, communities popping up around those uh, massive e-commerce distribution centers that you see along the highway on the outskirts of cities. Um, He thinks that this is a a good way to organize communities, that Amazon can provide uh, employer-provided shuttle buses so that people can get to work, eventually retail and dining hubs. Uh, will move in. Um, Sen goes on. He, this is, he, he does make a pretty decent point saying that uh, it's likely that housing prices will stay uh, level because rich people won't move in to inflate prices because rich people you know, won't want to live in the Amazon company town, uh, which is a good point. But he doesn't mention that Amazon will now be your fucking landlord. Uh also, on the issue of whether or not Nor does we can... he mention how that incentivizes Amazon to keep its living quarters as like miserable as possible? Yeah, it's, it's hypothetical living quarters, I should say. Right. This is a this is the same company that requires its employees to pee in bottles because they're trying to squeeze as much profit as they can out of them. That whoa, conducts whoa, whoa, mass. Hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Legal legal disclaimer: the workers do pee in bottles and they know about it, but they don't stop it. <laughs> By giving them proper bathroom yes. breaks. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> um, also, they don't require it. Yes. Uh, also, the company did <laughs> shit in the bottle. <laughs> mass surveillance on its workforce to defeat a union drive. Uh, curious how a company like that would administer stuff like healthcare and education. Um, on that, Sen simply writes. These new factory towns will presumably have issues that need addressing, such as adequate amounts of housing, school, and healthcare facilities. But the point is that we need to be thinking about what sorts of communities are being created by the growth of U.S. e-commerce infrastructure. Doesn't even address it. It just kind of leaves it there. (laughs) The main reasons why we organize into societies to provide, like, healthcare and education and commons to each other... uh, we're just not going to address that when it comes to Amazon's new factory towns. I know it's like cliche at this point that techno utopian guys love to reinvent things. Like you'll see like Uber and Lyft be 
you know, they'll 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 pull out some concept, be like, we have this large automobile that drives around a town in a regular, uh, predictable pattern, and that you can just get on and off whenever you want. And it's like, yes, this is a bus. Um, Connor Sin here has reinvented feudalism. Yes, he he wants to disrupt society uh, by reinventing and reimposing feudalism. Yeah. Uh... Dark stuff. Garbage can number six, Jared Isaacman. Uh, he's a billionaire and he's in space right now. So that's enough to get nominated. Isaacman, he's like a payment processing magnet and he purchased four seats aboard SpaceX's Dragon capsule, which uh, launched on Wednesday night. They're going to be up there three days just orbiting Earth, uh, reportedly doing stuff like reading poetry and playing the ukulele. This is... This is just another step forward for the space tourism industry exclusively built by and for the super rich. I hate it. I hate everything about this. So we're nominating Jared Isaacman to the garbage can. Finally, garbage candidate number seven. Yeah, Nicki Minaj. Y'all know why. (laughs) She decided just to uh, tweet out to her millions of followers that the vaccine can give you uh, massive infected balls um, because her cousin's friend got them. Um, then Nikki went on to like try and make allegiance with Tucker Carlson, who for obvious reasons is picking up on her story to spread vaccine disinformation. It's just a giant fucking mess. Um, deserving of a garbage can nomination. All right, Nicki Minaj, Jared Isaacman, Connor Sen, L.A. Dodgers Security, AOC, Pramila Jayapal. We got the trio of Democrats who killed uh, the uh, proposal in committee. I'm leaning toward Connor Sen. I just can't believe this article was written. I mean, I can believe it because I know the way rich people talk to each other when they think only like other rich people are listening, but... Shit's pretty disgusting to, uh, as you said, try to bring back feudalism. Um, yeah, I- I'm willing to think, uh, willing to throw someone else in though, if you have a better suggestion. No, no, let's do it. Let's throw in Connor. Connor, Connor said, you, "You are going in the garbage, garbage can." can. Ooh. Oh, that that'll be collected by your Amazon Town Waste Disposal Unit, which should be coming by sometime in the next five months. <laughs> That's the show. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be. 